1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America Podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome to the Great America Show. Good to have you with us. One of the takeaways, certainly, from the November elections was voter discomfort with a Marxist left and their intent to defund police. Minneapolis rejected the abolition of their police department that was to be replaced by a public safety department. Our next guest is one of the country's most important conservative voices. She's known for her pro-police views, her opposition to so-called criminal justice reform, and has written widely on the subject. She's written a number of books, including War on Cops. She's an attorney as well, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a graduate of Yale University with a bachelor's degree summa cum laude in English, a master's from Cambridge University, a graduate of the Stanford Law School. In other words, you will find her to be every bit as smart as she seems. And now, Heather McDonald. Heather, a delight uh, and honor to have you with us on the podcast. Uh, Great to have you here.
0: Thank you so much, Lou. It's always a pleasure speaking with you.
1: We have much to speak of, uh, and let's begin with a country that seems uh, to be uh, constantly validating uh, your fears, my fears, over the course of the past 20 years, uh, and to do so in the, in the most extraordinary uh, fashion. And by that, I mean attacking the very roots, the very foundation, the institutions of the country that have have liberated uh, not only a people and uh, this nation, but the world itself. Your, Your thoughts as we are witnessing all of this unfold before us.
0: Well, you're right, Lou. I am in great fear that every institution of Western civilization will come down unless Americans get the courage to fight back against the phony narrative that America today is characterized by white supremacy and and that any ongoing socioeconomic disparities can only be explained by racism on the part of whites. Uh, Those two propositions are false. And yet the elites who control the discourse make sure that no alternative explanations are allowed in. For instance, if if we look at uh, incarceration numbers, you know, the criminal justice system has been under attack for 20 years now for alleged racism. And the, the main piece of evidence for that is the fact that blacks are incarcerated at a higher rate than whites. There's no disputing that. The left And the Democratic Party and Joe Biden and Merrick Garland, our attorney general, will only allow one explanation for that, which is police are racist, juries are racist, prosecutors are racist, judges are racist, uh, and crime is basically a racist fiction. Well, the alternative explanation for that disparity in the incarceration rate is that crime rates are equally disparate but we're not allowed to talk about that. And so instead what's been going on and we've seen the results in the last year and a half is that we are discrediting policing. We're discrediting the criminal justice system. The police are backing off under the phony charge of racism. The results speak for themselves. Last year saw the largest percentage increase in homicide in this nation's history, uh, going back nearly a century. Uh, 30% increase in one year, which is utterly unthinkable. Uh, and yet the, the Democratic Party continues to turn its eyes away from the effects of this crime increase, which are more Black lives taken, in order to keep the narrative on track, which is that racism defines everything in the United States.
1: And the way in which they are using that mantra, Uh, And 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 cosmic conclusion uh, is as a is a battering ram against all of those institutions, all of our our uh, this country's basic values, Uh, and at the same time disregarding uh, any semblance of investigation as to what is the true causal relationship between. Racism between economic, uh, socioeconomic conditions uh, and outcomes, outcomes being in this instance violent crime. Uh, it, it, is, it, it is awful to watch our national left wing media in particular report as if uh, they're a direct conduit from truth and God Almighty uh, to the ears uh, of the television or web audience without so much as a single skeptical uh, glance at the facts uh, and the correlations uh, that, that follow from an honest examination of our, our society. It's as if 50, 60 years of progress in civil rights uh, in this country's histories have been wiped clean by the, uh, the Black Lives Matter, Antifa, neo-Marxists who basically guide and outright run uh, most, I believe it's fair to say, most uh, colleges and universities.
0: Well, Lou, you are absolutely right to finger the universities as the conveyor belt of this poison into the American polity. They are, every year we graduate a new crop of, of students who have been brainwashed by the poison of identity politics. They're carrying it into corporations. CEOs are terrified of their own workers. Uh, these are, are young people who are determined uh, to instantiate the ideology of the university, which is that white people are evil, that the institutions of Western civilization are oppressive whereas, in fact, they're the most liberating institutions that have been developed in human history. The left operates under principles that are developed uniquely in the West. Equality, tolerance, rights, these are uniquely Western concepts. Uh, And yes, this this country had a extraordinarily uh, hypocritical history that was tragically Uh, indifferent at the best, at best, to the mistreatment, the cruelty towards Blacks. That is undeniable, and that is the one one piece of truth that I will grant the 1619 Project, which Mm -hmm. is that we do need to acknowledge how gratuitously ugly parts of our history were. I can say that, and I can say at the same time, Lou, that we are not that world any longer, and that the concept of white privilege today is a complete fraud. The reality of our world today is black privilege because there is not a single mainstream institution, whether it's a law firm, a bank, a corporation, a foundation, a university, a big tech firm, a science lab, which is not twisting itself into knots Mm -hmm. to hire, admit, and promote as many minorities as possible. Anybody in the corporate world knows this, who is honest with himself. Anybody in the academic world knows this. Every faculty search is one desperate effort to find both so-called URMs, that stands for underrepresented minorities because Asians don't count, as minorities in in academic calculations or corporate calculations, and females. So the Blacks are being admitted to universities. They're being hired to universities with qualifications that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white or an Asian student or or often by a faculty admit. That is the reality. The, the, The statistics are clear. And yet, we're all going around pretending that the discrimination of 60 or 70 years ago continues to define our world. It does not. And as you warn Lou, this is so sweeping. You know, we spoke about criminal justice, it's not confined to that. I've recently been writing on the arts and classical music in particular. Classical music, Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms and Chopin are being torn down on the ground that they are somehow associated with white supremacy, science is being torn down. Uh, The the federal science agencies, and I'm sad to say that Trump did nothing about this, are, are putting considerations of race and gender way ahead of scientific merit. They are putting our scientific edge at risk. They are putting our safety at risk. Medical schools are admitting students with woefully inadequate qualifications, simply in order to meet diversity metrics.
1: And talking about the university uh, and our colleges, our educational system, suddenly the white male in this country is not only uh, uh, despicable, deplorable, if you will, Uh, in in the minds of the left-wing media and the uh, neo-Marxists who who now seem to be driving the uh, ideological momentum within our society and and body politic. But the reality is the white male is now underrepresented, at least in historical terms, on our college campuses. The white uh, female is still prized because there is a box that each institution can check off to, to virtue signal if you will, back to the federal government, uh, which is the arbiter all such things that by golly, you know someone is actually uh, paying attention to those poor females in our society uh, who historically have been ignored or, or suppressed uh, at, at various points in our history. Uh, it, it's absurd what we're wit- what we're witnessing.
0: It has to be named as such, and you have just done it, Lou. It is a war on white males, and it's a war on a civilization deemed too white and too male. Uh, we, we cannot beat around the bush. That is what's going on. The, the New York Times is quite explicit. We saw over the last year and a half, two years, in its coverage of the presidential campaign, uh, and, and more broadly, all it needs to do to discredit an individual or an institution is to append white uh, before that in individual or institution. Uh, and yet the Times claims that Trump is the one who is divisive. We have heard endlessly about white supremacy. We've been leading this, living this fiction. We, our culture is, is now engaged in these dramatic fictions where we're trying to body forth this idea of of dominant white supremacy. That's why we had razor wire and barricades around the Capitol for three months after January sixth to pretend that this one off event of people that were, you know, out of control, unruly, you know, despicable in their respect for for our public institutions represents some kind of growing tide, which is absurd. This was a, a, a unitary event that will not be repeated. But we're supposed to but there you had the resources of the federal government arming itself to the teeth to try and send the visual message that we were all under siege by white supremacists. Uh, and, you know, the the you it's not a historical disproportion on college campuses today, Lou. It is just right now. It, it is a disproportion. It's about two to one females to males. I want to okay. throw up. I want to throw up every time I hear about a new foundation initiative to get, you know, females into STEM or the idea that females somehow need more encouragement. No, it's males who are being suppressed and discredited and demoralized. And it's amazing that they succeed at all under these conditions where they are viewed as toxically masculine. Uh, if they show any kind of traditional male values of self-reliance and competitiveness and courage and effort.
1: It's the white male uh, as an oppressed group in, in this age. You scratch your head as you try to assimilate what all has happened over the course of, well, since the 1960s. And why we are witnessing this now is, is frankly I, I struggle to comprehend it, uh, Heather. I, I just, I cannot figure out. Was it the war on poverty when we started differentiating by, by race and ethnicity, uh, and subsequently gender? Uh, what happened that we went from melting pot uh, to multiculturalism, but with a with a real zinger in the midst of it that. Uh, there will be reparations, there will be, uh, we will reach back 200 years for those reparations to those who've been uh, oppressed uh, or suppressed uh, or mistreated in our society. Without even an acknowledgement for the veterans of the Revolutionary War, uh, how about those Americans who fought to free the slaves, uh, who died by the hundreds of thousands in the 1860s? Uh, to free slaves, where is the balance and proportionality and the sense of history as, an adva- as this nation is advanced? We are not the same as we were in 1776, nor certainly 1619. We are far, far better. But there is no implied credit to our society, to our system of government, to our body politic, and to our, our better natures as Americans uh, for all that we've achieved.
0: Well, I, I can agree with that analysis. I have been recently on sort of a reading jag of Black literature, some of the Black classics, whether it's Booker T. Washington or W.E. Du Bois or Claude Brown's *Manchild Child in a Promised Land or Native Son. And I have to say that the sort of conservative trope that we, we paid our dues in the Civil War is no longer too persuasive to me because the gratuitous cruelty and nastiness uh, to demean blacks continued well into the 20th century and it's heartbreaking to witness. I can say that again, and I can also say this. My, My, what I've come to understand about why this is happening now is I think the elites are terrified that the academic skills gap is not going to close or the behavior skills gap that means that Blacks are killed at 13 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 43. They die at 13 times the rate of whites. Why? Because their crime rates are that much higher as well. Those Blacks are not being killed by cops. They're not being killed by whites. They're being killed by other blacks. So there's a huge crime and 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 work and behavior gap. There's also a huge academic skills gap. The average black 12th grader reads at the average level of the average white eighth grader. Fifty four percent of black eighth graders do not possess even partial mastery of of of. Math skills for an eighth grade level. At that rate, you're not going to, it is absurd to expect that Google is going to have 13% Black engineers when the math skills are so, so low and they never get better over the course of college. So I've concluded that what's going on now with this fanatical obsession to denounce phantom racism, where again, as I say, the reality of our world is Black privilege where every institution is, is got double standards to admit blacks is that the elites are terrified that after the 60 years of civil rights effort, things are not changing for the better. And the only allowable explanation that they want in play is racism. Alternatives like culture or God forbid, heritability are simply uh, taboo. As far as the female stuff and males, uh, that's just feminism that is drunk on its own power, that is uh, angry for no reason whatsoever. I have never been discriminated against in my life. To the contrary, I'm sure that I've been the recipient of unwarranted gender privilege constantly. uh, and, And yet the feminists still insist on playing a victim card, which is ludicrous.
1: Well, they are aligned with the left, the Marxist left in this country. Uh, and understandably, they, uh, you know, they are drinking from the same punch bowl. Uh, are they inebriated? I don't know. But they are simply, uh, they are, if you will, uh, entertained by the prospect of uh, all of that political power that they enjoy as part of the, the Democratic Party's coalition. Uh, and to what end? It's uncertain uh, and the role of white males, uh, whites, particularly in this society, uh, you know when I when I'm referring to the Civil War and hundreds of thousands of Americans dying to free the slaves, I'm just talking about how about a footnote in history? Perhaps just a little measure of credit, credit. for doing the right thing. This mm-hmm. country over time, ha- have we made mistakes? Have we had periods of uh, uh, awful and ugly, uh, uh inhuman occasionally uh behavior certainly but not as a main course of our historic uh, advancement uh the arc of history is not bending this nation toward uh totalitarianism toward uh, a, a discordant uh, uh, departure from a worship of human rights and indeed god himself this is this is a religious country. It is a decent country. And when you watch the evening news or cable uh, television, you would think, my gosh, who are these Americans? I find them unrecognizable. Yeah. How about you?
0: Well, yes. And it's not just American history, it's Western history that is coming under attack by people who are completely ignorant. The, uh, you know, look around... Lou, your listeners should just look around their room or their house right now. Let their eye rest on every single surface. Every single surface was created by materials engineer, all the gadgets we've got, all the furniture, all the connectivity, all the clean water, all the clean food. It is astounding how... Western civilization with a rate of scientific discovery of of amateur dabblers in in science who were drawn by the, the desire to expand human knowledge and human progress have transformed human existence from what was millennia of squalor and poverty and death and premature death and childbirth, child death into something that is literally unrecognizable for somebody to that was living 200 years ago. And other of course other civilizations have created wonderful monuments, uh, wonderful traditions of, of literature and theater and 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 art. But the fact of the matter is is that Western civilization with its dedication to the scientific method and to tolerance and freedom, is the driver of world progress today. And yet you have these college students abetted by their professors mouthing empty bromides about colonialism and oppression. They know nothing about what was accomplished uh, with the Enlightenment, with the long evolution of constitutional history. They take it all for granted and want to throw it away confident as they are, that nobody will ever destroy their own standard of living. You know,
1: I, to my knowledge, I've never met a white supremacist,
0: but I have met
1: plenty of uh, virtue supremacists uh, of late uh, who tell me that because they are uh, leftists, because they are, uh, they live in a world of advanced uh, degrees uh, in academia, that they know better. And suddenly, I'm finding the same thing in the Democratic Party. We will have mandates. We will not discuss, we will not persuade, we will not lead. We will not seek the consensus of the governed. We will issue mandates, Fiat, dicta. And I can't find much of a difference between that kind of thinking on the part of our globalist elites in this country right now and the Stalinists and the Soviet uh, in the Soviet era.
0: Well, I, I ask myself that all the time. Is it, uh, can we be certain that liberty and a respect for the First Amendment and free speech is enough in our DNA as Americans to prevent us from sliding into Soviet-style totalitarianism? And I don't have the answer to that question. But when I see the censorship that's being exercised now in the private sphere uh, with the obvious sub Rosa encouragement of the democratic party, it is very, very worrisome. Uh, And, you know, the, the John Stuart Mill got it right. The marketplace of ideas is the best way to arrive at truth. If you think an idea is wrong, the solution is not to suppress it. It's to come up with a better idea. And that's not what's going on now.
1: It isn't. And, and to your uh, earlier assessment on uh, the elites and their concerns about not being able to uh, find a satisfactory explanation for f- enlarged gaps uh, when they have spent trillions of dollars trying to narrow them uh, and to do so in ways in which they can uh, create some sort of politically, sociologically acceptable veneer, uh, that doesn't disturb anyone. Uh, the fact of the matter is, our meritocracy that was America, a public school uh, education that was the greatest equalizer in our society, period, uh, all now threatened by the madness of the left and the coalescence of corporate power, academic power, and the political Marxist left in this country.
0: Well, standards have disproportionately impact. The most pernicious concept in our world today is disparate impact. It holds that any academic standard, any behavioral standard that has a disparate impact on Blacks is by definition racist. So if you have you know, high standards for admission to a selective high school, whether it's Stuyvesant High School in New York or, or some of the schools in Boston or Virginia, and that results in a student population that is not equally distributed demographically by population groups, then those standards have to go down because they're racist. Or if the standards for scientific laboratory work or for medical research have a disparate impact and they don't result in a a team doing cancer research that is 50% 50% female and 13% black and 14, 15% Hispanic, then those standards have to go because they have disparate impact. Uh, and, and, you know, that is, that is what's tearing everything down. And it is very scary to live in a world where meritocracy uh, is so destroyed. Because as you say, meritocracy is the key to, to, to progress and to human striving. But but here's the dirty secret: you can have meritocracy, or you can have diversity. You cannot have both. Given the academic skills gap, uh, you can choose. You can choose one or the other. But but they are, and and diversity. They are they are mutually exclusive. Diversity is simply a code word for racial preferences.
1: It has become such. I think you're exactly right and uh, we are also in a society that is no longer talking about equal opportunity and uh, and finding a, a way forward where uh, there is great advance it's happening because we have the momentum of this country's history and and our system of government but it is being eroded uh, almost almost every day by whether it be a government program whether it be a new uh, edict uh, emanating from the White House, or we look to the southern border where 2 million illegal immigrants have crossed over in the course of the past year. Uh, Not all of them will stay in the country, but many, if not most, will. And there is an open border for sex trafficking, human smuggling, drug smuggling, uh, and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans to overdoses because of those drugs, whether it be fentanyl, heroin, heroin, marijuana, cocaine, uh, that is upon us, as our government does not perform the basic fundamental uh, functions of government, which is to preserve and protect the republic.
0: Well, Lou, I'm I'm surprised to hear you using a sort of a utilitarian argument for border control, which is this, you know, drawing upon, well, the criminals are coming and the drugs are coming or the or the terrorists are coming. Mm -hmm. That is all true. But it is also simply, even without that, it Mm -hmm. is a demographic change that is going to transform, is transforming our culture. I'm a Los Angeles native. I can tell you the city has changed immeasurably and unrecognizably since I grew up there in the 50s and 60s because of large scale mass immigration. It is now a third world city. We are importing poverty, we are importing a poverty culture. Uh, and what's going on in the border now is absolutely terrifying. Uh, and, and we probably will not be able to, uh, you know, have anything to, to counter that.
1: The only counter I know, Heather, at this point is, and this, this podcast is dedicated to the great America show. Uh, I believe this is a great country. Uh, we are always becoming, but we have been great for centuries now. And we have to make certain that we are credited appropriately with the reality uh, that we experience and not uh, be persuaded by such nonsense as being spewed by some academicians who more are more in the business of indoctrination than education. Uh, and to understand that if we don't take control of our communities, uh, our neighborhoods, our lives, uh, the rest of this country will be very difficult for anyone to change unless we begin at home, begin in our hometowns to to govern ourselves once again and demand that right and responsibility for all Americans. Uh, Heather, you are always instructive you are always fascinating and always uh, brilliant and spot on. Uh, so thanks for being with us. You get the last word here, uh, as does each guest. Uh, I just want to say, first and foremost, thanks so much for what has been an engaging conversation. You get the last word.
0: Well, thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to get to these profound ideas with you. And I would just add to your observations about opportunity. That is the key. And people have to be armed with American values, with bourgeois values, in order to seize opportunity. We have to support self-reliance, deferred gratification, hard work, self-discipline. Those are the keys that have made America prosper. And we should not be ashamed of embracing those bourgeois American values as the legacy and birthright of all Americans, if we can do so and 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 point out the fact that people who exercise those values and virtues will get ahead, there is hope for the country. After all, Lou,
1: absolutely, Heather, I couldn't agree with you more, and I thank you so much for being with us. And hope you will come back with us uh, very very soon. I hope so too. Thanks so much, Heather McDonald. We will continue in just one moment. Stay with us. And now let's do something we do, perhaps not frequently, but certainly regularly on this podcast. Let's talk about religious liberty, the First Amendment, the freedom of religion, not the freedom from religion, as many on the left like to think about it. It's freedom of religion enshrined in the First Amendment, as I said. And as you know, the Marxist left in this country has tried to drive God from the public square to drive God out of classrooms, and to deny public school students prayer and even silent worship. There is a cultural crisis in this country that's worsening because the leadership in America is, in my opinion, worsening, and certainly the President Biden agenda reflects deepening threats against our constitutional rights. I want to take up all of this with radio talk show host, best-selling author, columnist, and Christian conservative, Salem Radio's Eric Metaxas, who, by the way, has a new bestseller book just out, and we recommend it to you highly. The title is Atheism Dead. Congratulations on the book, Eric, and a delight to have you with us. I can't wait to have a conversation and to begin, if we may, uh, with what is a, a cultural crisis that has risen to levels, I don't think you know, even at our most despairing, either you or I would have anticipated 20 years ago. Your thoughts on where we are and the forces at work in our society.
2: Well, first of all, a joy to be with you, Lou, very longtime fan. And I want to say that When you say uh, we're at a moment culturally that we couldn't have dreamed of 20 years ago, I think that's the first point that needs to be made is that we have to recognize that what we're going through now is lunacy. And I think we have to encourage other Americans that if you think this is lunacy, it's because you're sane. And there are more Americans who see the lunacy as lunacy than you would ever believe. They may not have voices in the media. But the fact is, people see what is happening. And in some ways, I will say it is a great thing because it is waking us up. We many of us have been asleep. We need to wake up. Keeping the republic is something that takes effort. And sometimes things have to get even this bad before some people realize, uh uh-oh, Maybe I better do something. So I am uh, cautiously encouraged.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. And a note to uh, our audience, the reason we call this the Great America Show is because we truly believe America is great. Uh, It is about a great America not a sullen or oppressive uh, nation. uh, But as uh, to use your word, Eric, a, a joyous and free nation and free people. All of that freedom is under threat, it seems, almost daily. But we are still a great nation, and we have nothing to apologize for uh, in being a great nation. I, I, I want to turn to the, the the wokeness that you referenced. I, I love the fact that the Marxist left in this country is talking about woke, which is sort of Fitting that they would be upside down on the language and inverse to the semantics and the actual meaning of language. What they mean is they want us to continue to slumber and to give them free reign to attack our national institutions, to destroy our American values, uh, and to deny us and our children and our grandchildren the promise of the American destiny. Well, your thoughts. Your thoughts.
2: Uh, you say, you know, I mean, it, the irony is that wokeness is the opiate of the masses. That's, you know, obviously an inversion of Marx's uh, infamous statement that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. But in fact, wokeness is the opiate of the masses because it tells them things that maybe they want to believe, but that can never be true in any universe. Um, we don't need to talk about it now, but my new book is called Is Atheism Dead? And we have to remember uh, that at the heart of everything that is true and good, not least American-style freedom and self-government, this thing we call liberty, at the heart of it all is the idea that our rights come from God and that he made us to be free. Marxism, cultural Marxism, wokeness, is the antithesis of that? It does. It it is explicitly, usually uh, not explicitly, but often explicitly anti-God. So whether it's BLM or Antifa or uh, Nancy Pelosi's party, you have people that have pushed God out. They have created a. They're in the process of creating a secular utopia, just as Lenin was trying to create it and Stalin was and Mao and that they can't do it. It's like, I mean, again, there's great irony. It's, it's like the tower of of Babel, right? We're going to build a tower to reach heaven. Hey, guess what? You can build for the rest of your life. You'll never get there. It has to come to you. And so anybody who thinks that they can get what they want and they don't need God, that is antithetical to the founder's idea. The founders all understood this. But what's, what's comical in a way, if you, if you want to say how good is America, America is so good that its own idea of religious liberty, which is at the heart of everything, even says to the atheist, even though what you would do ultimately would undermine all of this, nonetheless, we're such a free country that we give you religious liberty. The question is, will the atheists and the cultural Marxists give everyone else religious liberty? And the answer is an emphatic no. But we are waking up to what is really happening and to understanding how it's happening. And so, as I say, all of that is is a, is a good thing. But we do need to really understand it.
1: Absolutely, and uh, and it simply it is simply an assault now. Uh, this wokeness is just an expression of the assault that the uh, the left in this country uh, has undertaken against our institutions, our values, but against indeed the very idea of America itself. Right. I wish I wish I were comfortable with the thought or confident in the thought that oh these 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 folks who uh, want to deny conservatives. Uh, access to uh, the student bodies of universities and their campuses—you uh, know—that's just a misunderstanding. Uh, those who want to control the language uh, in the public arena uh, and by and thereby control thought uh, at every turning point, there is an effort to remove freedom to destroy liberties. Uh, not just simply minimize, they want to eliminate freedom of speech and thought. The academia at one time in this country was uh, hallowed ground for individual liberty, for uh, free speech, free thought, and expression. It has become something constricted and uh, suffocating, Denying expression of uh, whether it be liberty, whether it be uh, freedom of speech, whether it be freedom of religion, it is all under assault by the left.
2: the The thing that is, it's almost funny. I uh, I gave a speech at the University of the South in Sewanee. I don't know if it was five or six years ago. They they invited me there to give me an honorary doctorate. And it was very formal. And I was the convocation speaker. And I knew that they had gone pretty woke already then. And so I said, I'm going to take this opportunity to deliver uh, a speech very, very uh, anodyne in tone. But I said, I want to talk about free speech and and the vital importance of having a conversation with people who are on the other side of various issues. And it could not have been more measured and civilized. I went out of my way to make this point as kindly and gently as I could, but to make the point, the firestorm that came out of it, some student wrote to the paper, he says this was the most hateful thing he had ever heard in his life. You know, he was probably 19.1 years old, but right. he thought he would use that. And then uh, after that, it was uh, almost funnier. Uh, they, they are now threatening to revoke the honorary doctorate. So simply talking about free speech, what does it tell us? It tells us we're at war. If you can't agree on these super basics like freedom and speech and the Constitution,
1: you're, you're at war. And uh, it's a war that right now we're at, at mid-pitch of the battle, uh, it, it seems we are neither winning nor entirely losing, but we know what's at stake. And and now we have a government that is in league uh, with forces uh, in our society, uh, whether it be the doctrinaire uh, efforts of the left on college campuses, universities, uh, whether it be labor unions, whether it be the Democratic Party or the radical left itself, uh, there is sometimes a difference between the democratic party and the radical left, not often as there used to be, but sometimes, uh, it it's, it's starting to, to, we're starting to see people actually afraid in this country. Yes. Afraid to say something that might be considered offensive. I say, good, good on you for your, your speech, uh, at the university of the South. Well, again, that was, that was five a wonderful thing
2: to do or six years ago, but I thought to myself, listen, I, you know, you, you may know, I, I wrote a 600-page biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great right. heroes of the 20th century, who stood up to the Nazis as a Christian, felt an obligation to God to speak out for the Jews, to speak against the Nazi doctrine. Most Christians, who were actually just churchgoers, calling themselves Christians, they, they, they looked the other way. They didn't want to get in trouble. That's, of course, where we are. In America today, are enough people going to wake up and be willing to use the freedom that we still have to speak up, to defy nonsense, uh, to encourage those who see the madness? Uh, Are we going to do that? Or are we going to say, not yet? I don't want to lose my job. I'm just going to go with the flow. Uh, If you tell me to get a a vaccine shot that I I don't think is going to do me any good or might do me harm, I, I can't think about that. I want my job. I'm just going to do it. The government says, do it. I'm feeling this pressure. That's precisely what the good Germans were feeling in Germany. They were not some evil tribe. My mother came from there. My my family is from there. These are good people who simply lacked courage in the moment when it was needed. We are in such a moment in the United States. If people do not stand up and live out their freedom, and spend what you've got now in this war. Tomorrow, what you thought you could spend will be taken away from you. And I don't just mean money, I mean your voice. Uh, So this is really, really serious. And we did not, of course, declare war. Once somebody says to you, free speech is out, what you say is hate speech, uh, and we're going to come after you. Once that happens, and people go along with it, and of course, many Republicans Craven, as they are, have gone along with it. Corporate America, ultra-craven, they have gone along with it. The few of us willing to speak can make the difference between whether we go down the path that Germany went down uh, or whether we remain free. I believe God's hand is on this country. We couldn't have lasted or come into existence if that weren't the case. But uh, he doesn't force us to do the right thing. Right now, we have to exercise our courage everybody uh, has to do that. It is absolutely vital. We do not want to repeat uh, the, the mistakes of the past. I, I, I do believe we are unique. Uh, there has never been a country like America, and I don't think it's our time to vanish. But sometimes things really need to get horrible for a lot of good people to finally wake up.
1: And and one of the things, one of the most important things I wanted to talk to you today about, of course, uh, is the role of religion uh, and the reception of uh, the current American society to religion. Uh, Because, and I do so with the full knowledge that there are some people listening in the audience who uh, may not believe in God or are agnostic, uh, who do not want to talk about religion in a, a secular sense where we're talking politics and Uh, and economics and uh, other issues that uh, certainly involve religion. Religion is involved in all our lives, whether we uh, acknowledge it or not. But to see, uh, uh, and I want to speak, I want to get your opinion on this, because I'm starting to see signs, whether it be in our church or whether it be uh, our pastor or just across the country, I'm seeing uh, evangelicals, Christians, certainly, starting to stand up and say, you know, this is wrong, and and President Biden, let's pray for him, but what are we praying for? And there was a time where it would be the pastor would just simply say, let's pray for our leaders. Now, we are praying for guidance uh, by Almighty God, and being very clear about the direction that we want to go preserving freedom preserving the right of uh, worship and and preserving this great nation I see an awakening uh, and I, I I find it exhilarating uh, to to hear these words now from the pulpit
2: well, again, that's a, these are rare churches that are waking up, but they don't all need to wake up. Uh, the handful that are that are waking up and that are defying preposterous government mandates. There are a number of churches. I've actually spoken at them in California, Jack Hibbs's church in Chino Hills and Rob McCoy's church in Thousand Oaks, and a number of them around the country where they have said, we refuse to bow the knee to the state. We are free. We have freedom of religion in America. These are heroes, these folks. And I'll tell you something. They're so inspiring that atheists are going to these churches. Atheists uh, are saying, whatever they have, I'm attracted to it. That freedom, that courage, uh, these churches are growing. And the churches that continue to speak in a mealy-mouthed way and, uh, you know, take as their text, the editorial page of the New York Times, those, those churches have been shrinking for about 100 years, but right. they're sh- shrinking the more dramatically. I, there's no way around it. America has always been about, we respect differences. We, you can never force someone to have faith or to not have faith. That's the, the whole point of religious liberty. The founders said, we need faith in this country to make people virtuous and to make them on their own do the right thing so we can have limited government, we can govern ourselves, but we understand that it has to be free. No one can force anyone to go to a church or go to a mosque or whatever. Once you start forcing people, either it's a theocracy or or it's what they were fleeing from in Europe, or uh, it's an atheist uh, tyranny. And we see that unless you have freedom of religion, religion can't really flourish. And the reason freedom has flourished in America is because religion has flourished. Tocqueville saw this 50 years after the revolution and was astonished because uh, in, in France, it was just the opposite. The church was married to the state. It was this, this uh, monolith of power that they wanted to get rid of. But in America, the the faith uh, of the people made them freer. The churches were, were free to speak whatever they liked. And so it's it's a dramatic experiment in liberty, this United States uh, that, that we have been privileged to live in. And I simply think that it's it's part of the, the theme of the book of my book, is Atheism Dead, is that in the last 60 or so years, we've taken our eye off the ball. We've believed that uh, secularization was the answer. In other words, rather than say, we can't force religion on people and we have to have separation of church and state. We took that fatal step and said, we're going to secularize everything. We're going to take God out of everything. Well, that's no different than imposing God imposing secularism or an atheist view is no different than imposing uh, a certain kind of Christian view or a Muslim view. We've really blown that. And it has ultimately led to where we are today.
1: One of the, I think, uh, great uh, achievements of the Trump administration was restoring religion to the public square. I, and I think he doesn't get sufficient credit. In some cases, uh, that contribution is ignored altogether. But no president in recent history has done more to restore the church and religion to the public square, the public arena, uh, and political debate in the country. Uh, well, and, one uh, and of the that reasons so many love him. Yeah, it's it's such a critically important uh, turning point in our history, and I believe sets the the groundwork, if you will, for even uh, more achievements uh, as we as we confront the tests, the challenges, and threats to to religion in this country. Your book, "Atheism Is Dead," I recommend actually it's it. a que-
2: it's a question. I'm I'm, I'm, tra- <laughs> I'm trying to frame it. Time Magazine said is God dead, so I put it as atheism dead.
1: Right, I, I, I think that that uh, they hated using that uh, that question mark. Uh, they were asserting something I thought rather emphatic, rather than interrogatory. Yeah, uh, I, and I happen to believe uh, atheism is uh, is certainly alive and well, but. Is it dying? Is it dead? Uh, you know, no better person to ask, answer that question than Eric Metaxas is in my uh, in my view. Uh, so, is atheism is it dead? Okay. Um, the reason I asked
2: that question: the book is really not so much about atheism. Um, uh, the last third of the book deals more directly with atheism. But uh, here's what happened: I. Over the years, I, I became very serious about my faith uh, around my 25th birthday. And since then, you know, I went to Yale and I grew up in a very secular environment. Uh, you know, even though we went to church on Sundays, nobody was reading the Bible and praying at meals or anything. So I had this experience at age 25 and I started reading books. And I was astonished to see that, you know, there's there's no reason to say that uh, science is the enemy of faith, and I was reading these books over the years, and reading what you know we call apologetics, realizing that there's nothing more reasonable than the Judeo-Christian faith. It has led to every kind of great thing. Well, as we know, in 1966, the cognoscenti, the powers that be, decided to put this idea of the death of God in America's living rooms. It had been uh, in 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 the universities. It had been in the in certain areas, but now it comes into America's living room and they ask, is God dead? Of course it comes from Nietzsche who declared God is dead and, and then promptly went insane. Right? Well, I think over the decades, the evidence, this is very uh, surprising to people and I'm not surprised that people almost find it hard to believe, but the facts are in the book and it is surprising, but that since, That Time Magazine article came out, it's 1966. Roughly since then, the evidence from science, from various disciplines in science, has been absolutely clearly pointing to the existence of a creator to the point where it's an open and shut case. You can hate the idea, but science has been steadily pointing more and more clearly to the idea that there is... Zero chance that everything um, emerged randomly, that the Earth just happened to be perfectly tuned for life, and that the first cells emerged four billion years ago. A cell is an unbelievably complex thing. The idea that it emerged out of the random sloshing of the primordial soup, we now know enough from science to know those things are preposterous. So the question is what do you do with it? Well, I, I bumped into a scientist uh, in Houston where I'm going tomorrow actually and he uh, gave me yet another piece of information on this and I said you know what I've got to write a book because people can't believe that we haven't been hearing this information it's been piling up like snow overnight you're sleeping and you wake up and there's that you can't even open the front door it's drifted it's just it's it's unbelievable and you've been sleeping and I feel like we've been sleeping in this secular dream, forgetting that, um, first of all, science was never the enemy of faith. It was Christian faith in the 16th and 17th centuries that led to the rise of modern science, which is a great irony. And suddenly there's all this information from science. There's been outrageous uh, evidence from the world of archaeology that points to the historical accuracy of the Bible. And it piled up so much. I said, I've got to write a book. And I thought, you know what? The question now is, is atheism dead? Because I will say, I will answer and say that atheists may insist that, no, we're not dead. We're here. Well, I'm here to tell you flat earthers are also here. But it doesn't mean that the theory of flat earth is not dead. And if you want to be an agnostic, if you want to say, listen, I hate Christians. I hate religion. I don't like it. That's fine. That's it's a free country. But to make the statement there is no God and to be a committed atheist based on what's in this book and of course much else, but uh, I say it is intellectually untenable. The science has over the last let's say five decades piled up quietly. People haven't looked at it. They bought the thesis that God is dead and they just moved on. They said you know even when evidence comes up, um, and I make the case later in the book that the t- the the those atheists who looked most rigorously, uh, unflinchingly at the idea of atheism, both ended up coming to faith in God, which to me is a gigantic headline, and no one has ever heard about it. And when I discovered it, I fell out of my chair. I said, this is uh, this also has to go in the book, because it tells you everything.
1: You mentioned archaeology, one of the most exciting uh, uh, to me, because I'm interested in space and And the technology of uh, imagery from space, particularly when uh, the cameras are trained uh, on on the Middle East uh, in particular, for there to be the the, and and we'll call this the possibility of Sodom having been discovered. The the the, and the fitting in the place where the the Bible. Uh, suggests it would be uh, also the Ark. Now there is a very real possibility that they have discovered the actual Ark. I know that there have been claims before, but this has the uh, this has the rigor of science and technology and imagery to back it up. Uh, it is a very promising find, and there there suddenly there are a number. I, I would say at least a half dozen. Uh, of these examples uh, to support your view on uh, the evidence that is becoming uh, significant and perhaps uh, compelling uh, to the point of conclusion, that my gosh, the book is actually throughout far more than allegory and metaphor. Uh, there is there is demonstrable evidence of the events and places uh, that occurred uh, in the Bible. I mean, that's I, that's exciting. I, I dare anyone to look
2: into it. They, they will be stunned. The, the Just in my book, the middle section is on archaeology. And of course, I don't list everything. But but first of all, the, the discovery of biblical Sodom, there is zero question. Zero. When you look into it, there was an article in Nature. Twenty one scientists analyzed the data from this site. It is simply open and shut. So to say that we found something from 1700 BC that's talked about in the Bible and 21 scientists were so astonished that in a peer reviewed, you know, probably one of the most prestigious, certainly one of the most prestigious academic journals on the planet, they refer to Sodom and the destruction of Sodom because it's so uncanny that they have to mention it. When, when I discovered this and then, I, then, you know, first you're shocked. Because I mean, I really looked into it with skepticism. And then I said to myself, and not only is this true, no one knows this. This is, there's no headlines. There's no, I said, this is gigantic news. And the same thing is true of uh, Christopher Hitchens was asked once, what's the strongest argument for God? And in a very rare moment of candor, honestly, he said, uh, oh, the fine tuned universe. And yeah. the argument for the fine tuned universe that the more science discovers about the nature of the Earth, the nature of the universe, the more science discovers that if anything were ever so slightly different, just a tiny, tiny bit different, no life would exist. And and this is discovered daily, more and more. In other words, the more science discovers, the more it points to the idea that there's zero chance this was not created uh, by some infinitely intelligent designer. This narrative has not been out there. And that's why I wrote the book. I said, we've got to get people to look at the facts. You don't have to agree with everything, but boy, you're going to be
1: surprised. You'll probably be be shocked, frankly. Eric, uh, we thank you for being with us. We thank you for writing the book. We recommend your book uh, to the audience uh, wholeheartedly. The book is... Is atheism dead? Atheism is dead. Uh, question mark. Uh, it's terrific, and uh, we we again recommend it to you. We thank you so much for being with us, Eric. And as our custom, you uh, you get the last word here.
2: Well, first of all, I do want to say again, uh, you are a treasure, and uh, I have admired your work uh, for years, and I'm just so grateful for you, and I'm thrilled. You have found this new medium and honored uh, that I get to be on it. And I just want to say that the, the, the title of the book is Atheism Dead really postulates that we have been living with a narrative and that narrative leads to socialism and Marxism. The idea that we can get rid of God and we all have to discover that it cannot work. It, it simply cannot work. It won't work. We can try and try and try and try. It doesn't work. What works is uh, a free market with virtue. What works is a republic of self-governing individuals who have virtue. That is what the founders, by the grace of God, were able to give us. And so many people died for that. And if we have to get to this level of wokeness and madness uh, you know, to the, the, the build back Brandon uh, you know, theme that we're just going to destroy everything and we're going to start afresh. I think ironically, the opposite is happening. People are waking up to the things that, you know, we took them for granted. Well, now we realize we better not. So as I say now, I said in the beginning, I am uh, cautiously but very seriously hopeful for this uh, nation, not least because of folks like you. So thank you very much, Lou Dobbs. Very kind, Eric. Thank you so
1: much, Eric Metaxas. We thank you and all of you listening. uh, I would just like to say we'll see you next time, and God bless you all. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America Podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against
2: all odds.